Welcome to Logos. In this episode, I am excited to introduce Kevin Stock. So to perhaps let the listener know in a brief introduction, um, who are you and what is on your work schedule? So I am, I do a lot of different things. The easiest thing to say is someone asked me that I just say I'm a dentist um, because I'm a trained dentist, but I don't do all that much dentistry. Uh, I kind of focus in two niche areas of dentistry. I see pediatric patients and I work in this niche area of dentistry called dental sleep medicine. Uh, but basically, I think the reason you came across me and a lot, the reason a lot of people came across me is I've been into health and fitness for forever since, you know, I was a young kid, overweight kid. And so that's what got me into, you know, getting fit. And then through the sciences, I, I went through uh, college, studying chemistry, got degrees in chemistry, biology, went to dental school. And I really filtered all the sciences through, you know, how to build muscle, how to lose fat, and eventually how to get healthy. Um, and so that's how a lot of people come to know me. Now my work schedule is, like I mentioned, some dentistry. I, in the dental sleep medicine area, I developed a anti-snore device, hopefully soon to be used as a anti-obstructive sleep apnea device as well, but it's called the NED device. So it's a product that goes in your nose to help treat sleep disordered breathing. We can go into what all that is if you're, if you're curious, but so I do that. Uh, I run meat.health. It's a website and, you know, I created Meat Health Academy, which is a program to, you know, help people go through and do a meat based diet to get the body they want and get the health they want. And so I, I do that. I do, I have other hobbies. So my days, like, I guess one of the reasons why you reached out and you said you want to talk is because I, you know, it seems like I do a lot of different random stuff and how do I fit it all in and find work life balance and things like that. Uh, but I guess that's an overview. Uh, there's definitely a very interesting component to mm, the idea of living life in a way that is not only conducive to the growth of one certain area of your life that is perhaps in the long term very monotone, but seeking out a balance. And so maybe to um, pick this a bit apart, where do you find your motivation for different areas? I can see very much that going out from your childhood with a problem that is unfortunately way too common um, to develop such an idea, but especially, and um, that's what's really interesting is you've published um, quite some music as well as very um, impressing drawings and other artistic outlets. How have you come to the idea to live this out? And maybe um, not only what was your experience and how this particularly trade improved, but what has that done to your life? Yeah, so I do a lot of things and uh, I think it stems from, maybe I'm unique in this, but I doubt it, is that I think a lot of people in general, maybe even most people in general, have lots of different interests and passions. And unfortunately, society is kind of built in a way where 
you're rewarded if you really just specialize in one little area and that's all you do. So for example, you go, most people have nine to five jobs where they do the same thing day in and day out. Like for example, I was in dental school and this is one of the, one of the things that motivated me to, that launched me on this trajectory was basically I asked myself, do I want to drill and fill nine, you know, nine to five, five days a week for the next 40 years of my life? Uh, and the answer to that was no, I have all these other interests and passions and interests and passions and things I didn't even know yet. So like we talked about music and, and some art. Um, and so basically, uh, there, I, I remember, so I started a dental sleep medicine practice after I graduated dental school and I was waiting for a patient to come in and you know for a consultation or whatever and they didn't show up and so I, I just i remember this day very clearly because i was sitting there thinking i was like man if i could be doing anything right now would i be sitting here in this office uh, you know doing what i'm doing and the answer was probably no like i'd rather be doing this and this and this and this and you know all these exciting things which seemed very much like impossible at the time and then like i asked myself like is it really impossible for me to you know if i want to explore my creative side because I'm, I'm most fulfilled when I'm, when I'm creating something. And so if I took up art or if I took up music, things like I've always been interested in, but I've had no talent, no exposure to. Um, and so basically I was like, well, why don't I explore these things? Basically the, the, the underlying question. And, you know, the, the reason was like one of two things. One was like, either I do believe it's impossible and that's why someone won't go for, you know, why, why I won't do this because I don't think it's possible. I don't think I'll be able to do it, right? And I was fortunate enough at that point in my life, I'd read enough biographies to know like some of the most famous, let's say stars in the world or the most famous artist or like I read the biography of Leonardo da Vinci and, you know, one of the greatest artists of all time. He's also like, he's, he was renowned in many areas as well, like inventions and things like this. When I read his biography, like one thing stood out to me like more than anything. And it was like, he, while he probably had some natural talent, he was like not that special of a person. The one special quality he had was he was ruthlessly curious and he just allowed himself to follow through his curiosity, which, you know, most people do not do today. Um, so long story short is I didn't believe like me being exploring the arts or the music was impossible. Uh, but I think a lot of it stemmed from like fear. Like I worked so hard to become a dentist, you know, you have to go through tons of schooling and training and et cetera, as well as debt. Um, and if you're going to go try and do this and this and this and this, well, you have to stop doing more of what you're doing. And so there's this fear of losing what you have to go do what you want to do. And, you know, something that's like stuck in my head for like a, like a saying that's stuck in my head for a long time. It's kind of like a motto that I live by is like, what's the point of tiptoeing to the grave? Like if we know, let's say you're going to die when you're 80 years old, what's the point of trying to get there as safely as possible? You might as well like take some risk and have some adventure um, because like we know where we're ending up, right? We're ending up in the grave. So it makes no sense to try and get there as safely as possible. So, you know, that's kind of a, me rambling on how I've come about doing so many random different things. Uh, we can go in more depth of like, with those specific things but i think like the underlying reason was like i didn't want to just 
settle for doing just one thing when I have all these potential abilities and interests and passions, and I don't want to just stifle those out. So allow myself to explore it, believing that it is possible to, you know, get better at, at these areas and have these areas in my life. So. And I, yeah, I thought about this a lot. It, it appears like, because when you talk about the underlying perhaps uh, dissatisfaction is the right word with um, having a certain lane almost chosen for you. Of course, you have a certain amount of variety you can um, go towards, but it is a very paved path. And That's right. um, going through history, um, we, we kind of, the, the more we go back, the more explicit what we had to do becomes. Just going back after the Enlightenment, uh, for example, the Industrial Revolution. I mean, you work or you starve. That's yes. pretty straightforward. Or further from a um, primal perspective, you eat, you reproduce, and you sleep. And there isn't much more to life. Of course, it's way more risky, but you don't have as much choice that is of course way more complex right so so now we have this kind of opportunity problem and so what i would say you did is um notice those opportunities and not only as and this is what i think many people do see them as these stars that may of course are possible but um, are so far away that they're not really worth pursuing because the, the chance is so low. Uh, what, what, and maybe your perspective would be interesting because certainly you've chosen that this was the righteous idea to pursue. The counter argument would most often uh, be that in, in our economic system, if we go now from a um, materialistic standpoint, um, so much luck and so much innate uh, talent and your position and your parents and whatever is involved that this hard work um, isn't worth it because the system is rigged and you don't have a chance to begin with. Hmm. Yeah, so let's start with... Uh... Let's start with the, the second part of that question, because the assumption is you can't carve out your own path because the risk of failure. Is that, is that kind of what you're suggesting? Sure. And you make a comparison to, a, for example, the artist that has been long gone. And what we bow about him now, of course, this is a one perhaps in a billion case. And um, the counter argument would be, well, this person may have done it, but that's certainly not me. So how have you chosen perhaps to associate? Right, because it's the, the idea of like the starving artist, right? And so, yeah. you know, if, I was, if someone was asking me like and trying like consulting with me, like, what do you suggest? Well, if someone is very passionate about art and that's what they want to do, that's what they should do. You should forget about like the money side of it uh, because you assume there's no money in art, right? There's no money in art until after you die. 
uh, well, I would challenge that. We got there's this guy Beeple who just sold a you know a piece an NFT basically of one of his drawings for nearly seventy million dollars. So and, and like digital art design, like there's people can make you can make a living in art one hundred percent. So I think there's a lot of limiting beliefs people have, almost like excuses to say oh, I can't do what I want to do because X Y Z. When really there is a way you can do what you want to do. But regardless, if your passion is art, there's a, there's there's several things. Like one is you can do the art, right? And you can have another job, right? That's not impossible. If you really if you love art, you should do it, right? I I don't get paid to work out. Um, I do it because I love it. I know it's beneficial and things like that. So it doesn't have to be where your passion necessarily is your source of livelihood. Um, but it very much well could be. And for a lot of people, it could turn into that where it's like, okay, this is a hobby. Then it becomes more of a passion. Then it becomes more of a part-time career. Then it becomes a full-fledged people where you're selling your artwork for $70 million. Right? So there's many ways to make things like this work. Um, and I think the further someone strays from mainstream, um, the more likelihood they have to have success. For example, like I'm looking at you here. I don't know. You look like a young guy. Probably. I'm how old are you? 16. 16. So you, everything tells me this kid should just be in high school. It's summertime. He should probably be either have a worthless summer job or, you know, playing with friends or things like that. But anyway, you're reaching out to people and having a podcast. So like that's not taking like the normal path. And I would say, if, like, if we were to fast forward 10 years from now, and we took a bucket of your 16-year-old friends in high school, and we took you, and we look at where your guys are at, I think we'll see a good-sized divide. And I would argue probably the biggest reason that divide is there is because everyone else is told to go on this mainstream path, right? And that path is very crowded, and because it's so crowded, it's competitive, and, you're, and there are, everyone's competing after kind of like, not that great of stuff. And because you escape the pack over here, there's little to no competition there and way more upside rewards and things like that. So I think some of the notions of like, do what society says, cause it's safe. Um, there's some truth to that. Like I could easily just be a regular dentist that does dentistry 40 hours a week, make a good income, have work-life balance. Um, and that would be very safe. Um, I would probably be 100% miserable. And what's the sacrifice you're willing to make? Like, is am I willing to like sacrifice my entire life for this safety? That makes no sense to me. Uh, to trade your life for safety, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that's kind of how I think about things. Well, first of all, um, thank you. Um, I, I, I certainly. Um, very aware of the reality of the certain dissonance with my peers. Although it's not like I am a, a different kind of species. It's right. the, the totality of our consciousness that would, I would say allows us to be so variable in what we pursue. And whether it is for um, our own sake or it ought to be whether an 
altruistic pursuits for the greater of humanity, that's a totally different question. But I would say the, the best you can do at the beginning is go with the presupposition that um, you, you definitely should not uh, merely yeah, follow safety, as you just said, but pursue what you deem to be righteous to actually pursue. And I mean, in the perfect society, everybody would then be doing the same, of course, of, given that individual variance is not taken in account, then there would be no one who has to go on a far-fetched path because it's just normal. And I think that's what we're kind of on one side striving towards, but then there's like a big chunk of people you can't disregard that are just kind of halfway there, but there's a certain gap where they say, and perhaps this is an issue of mindset, uh, I, I can't go on. And then, of course, because as you just said, one group may take off and the other one may even suffer because um, they relatively are uh, staying in the same place and it looks like that they're losing because the others are winning, um, that they thus may uh, become miserable because they keep comparing themselves to those who act differently. And the, the, the best we can perhaps do from a perspective of society is uh, bring those into the same boat and get them to pursue the same. So, you know, what, what you're talking about may make a lot of sense for someone who doesn't really know what to do um, or is uh, aware that they have a certain talent but doesn't really know how to express it. But could you perhaps specify um, if you know, you know, uh, I'm pursuing something, perhaps a nine to five, perhaps a, a bad as well entrepreneurial pursuit that isn't worth it. Um, how can you motivate yourself into making, making a change and taking risks? It's a good question. So first, like I want to talk, I want to mention something you talked about, because I think if we assume all your baseline means, needs are met. So you didn't have to worry about food, you didn't have to worry about money, anything like that. All your baseline and everyone else's was as well. Um, what would you do? What would everyone do? And, you know, I've thought about that question a lot. And to me, it becomes very clear that it would be mostly creative work. And not everyone would be doing the same stuff. Some people would go towards arts or, or some people would go towards like new inventions and sciences, but it would be very creative, innovative, um, and it would be a place where people could just explore their what their unique interests, desires, curiosity. Um, and so your question about motivation, like there's two things that you know motivate most people. One is desire. So I, this is the weaker of the two, but it's like what kind of life look out five years from now, what kind of life would you like 
would be amazing, right? And design a life like, like just imagine it, write it down. What would you be doing every day? Who would you be interacting with, et cetera? That should be motivating. If it's not, then you need to think bigger. You got to think broader, okay? The more powerful way to motivate yourself, and I, you know, at least personally, as you know, some of the science suggests this as well, is fear. So you can also look five years out, 10 years out, even better, look on your deathbed and say, man, I didn't, you know, I tried to play it safe and I, I stuck in this job I hated or I didn't try and create that business I really wanted to create because I was afraid of X, Y, Z. It's like that fear of regret. Like to me, if I had like a hard decision to make, like you said, like I need to self-motivate myself to go do this risky business or whatever. And I'm not talking about just doing stupid, risky stuff, but just if you, if you, ta- if you have the perspective to be like, if I don't do this, is this something that I'm going to regret? Like, I'll look back and be like, man, I lived my last 50 years of my life pretty miserable because I was afraid to start that business. Um, or I was afraid to ask that girl out, or I was afraid to do X, Y, Z. Um, to me, that is much more motivating than anything else. And it kind of comes back to the thing I I was talking about earlier is like, we know the end results, like we are going to die, right? That is one thing that we're pretty sure that's going to happen, right? So far, there's a hundred percent death rate of everyone that's lived for, you know, that's been on this planet for more than 150 years, 130 years, 120 years. I don't even know how old old this person is right now, probably 120. But like, if you know you're going to die, then, I mean, life is just all about like, getting the most out of it, enjoying it. If you're just going to suffer through it to die, what's the point? What's the point of trying to safely get to the grave rather just take some risk? I mean, so you can argue comfort and I, I don't, you know, I don't want to just say that's not important because like you don't want to suffer like starve for 80 years and be in constant misery that way. Right. So it's important. Basic needs, safety, food, shelter are met. Um, but for most people listening to this, a lot of those things are met. And if they're not, it's generally not that challenging to meet these things. Um, and so then we just need to like take one more step further uh, and really kind of explore more of like assuming, like we were just talking about, if all these basic needs are met, what would you do? What would you like to do? And if you don't do it, what would you regret? And to me, those are kind of the questions that, you know, least personally would inspire action personally i deem this as a um, very sufficient answer um, to make a a clear distinction because i believe that this um, could be subject to great misinterpretation because while you've distinguished definitely between what is positive motivation against negative motivation, which is definitely important um, for my understanding. Ultimately, both aligned would create the most clear um, definition of the ideal if you were to be running away from um, something, you could still run into another disaster so if you have an actual goal that's worthwhile, you as well, you don't have only have the motivation of running away, but as well, you have something to aspire to. So the more precise you define it, 
the better. And you've had the presupposition of five years ahead, um, which definitely is an important component because if you were to think, okay, um, let's plan the next day ahead and I want to maximize pleasure, it would certainly look very different than the next five years. Right. And it, it, that would be perhaps an interesting thought experiment. Let's say you die tomorrow. What would you do? And I don't think that would be much different than to say you die in 100 years. And for most, probably uh, it's less, even though there's a certainty um, that we may be able to expand this uh, if you're willing to work towards it from your personal health. Um, so for me, and that's a very, it's an extremely complex question, but I would say the, uh, the most fulfilling pursuit is ultimately for a certain greater good of humanity and not only to maximize individual pleasure. Um, and I think most likely you've experienced this yourself, um, given that you, um, and maybe you can elaborate on that now further, have not only pursued certain aspects of your life that would maximize profits, um, but even besides these artistic endeavors that um, bring happiness to others, um, you have a family and as well, even your monetary income comes from the action of improving other people's physical health. So what would you say brings you there the, the greatest meaning? Or I, yeah, I would say that's true happiness. So it's a, it's a great question. And one thing that I believe is often that these two things can be aligned. What is good for you can also be good for everyone else. It's not like, let me take care of myself and then I can take care of so. Like it's very true. You need to put the oxygen on yourself before you can help everyone else, right? But 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 you don't want to you don't want to put the oxygen on yourself and then leave the others alone. Exactly. So it's this this idea of if you don't put the oxygen on yourself, you can't help anyone because you're gonna die, right? Because that that's the thing. So you put the oxygen on yourself and then you help everyone around. But I actually think in putting oxygen on yourself, at the same time you can as you do that can put oxygen into other people up. So for example, um, the Meat Health Academy. Now, I put my heart and soul into creating this program. And now there is a price. So people have to invest in this program to get in. But when they do, it's gonna change their life. Like there's no question. So I benefit, they benefit. It's this mutual, um, mutual beneficial relationship. Uh, and so, these win-win things, I think, are what people should strive for. And I mean, truly behind most any entrepreneurial, you know, there's definitely corruption and things like that. But any business is based off of improving a product or a service that's going to make people's lives better, make things easier, make things faster. And it's basically just to, to you know, force to help someone else. And in exchange, people give money in exchange for that. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the nature of exchange in business and entrepreneurship, uh, is 
making improvements on everything in order to help people. Um, like that's the, that's at the very, like, that's at the epicenter of like commerce. And so, and it's, and it's this idea of mutual beneficial relationships. And so, uh, I know there was more parts to that question and I'm, I've, so remind me, <laughs> the well, definitely because then one could argue, even given that presupposition that, um, our economic system is based on a meritocracy that values actual um, worth given in an exchange of money that then represents another value. So if we um, take this into account, and I would definitely agree with that, there's still a certain element that not only strive for the satisfaction of your own needs, and you've said before, um, this kind of fulfillment of desire in the ultimate isn't that fulfilling. For example, you could easily say, well, um, seeking out a, a family um, or even something as simple as, for example, hypothetically um, donating money to charity would not really help you in any direct way, given that they don't give you anything in um, the response. So why then pursue that? Why pursue philanthropy? Yeah. Um, I think most people that pursue philanthropy uh, you can't say they don't get anything in return because the reason people give philanthropy is because it makes them feel good as helping other people. It's not a bad thing. It's a good, I mean, it's a good thing, it, but it's not purely unselfish. Meaning if giving money away really made them feel bad, they probably wouldn't do it. They do it because it, there's this, I'll call it mutual exchange. I want to help you. And in helping you, it makes me feel good. And as you were saying, we are all together on this planet, right? So helping a person, helping the planet, it's the thing that, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And people that realize, you know, look, philanthropies help lift this boat, this boat, you know, the tide's going to rise all the ships. So, you know, that's how I would respond to that. Uh, and I mean, there's this question of good, bad, you know, these, these are all very subjective things because for example, someone like whatever, uh, Jeff Bezos, who has hundred billion dollars and he, ha he has not been known for his philanthropy. Um, and people kind of give him a hard time for that. But for example, Bill Gates, he, he also did not give to, you know, much through philanthropy respective to his, you know, his net worth, but now he's giving billions and billions and billions away. So basically what I'm saying is it better to like, if you give a dollar, give 50 cents away or to accumulate a billion dollars and give away, you know, half a billion dollars, you can make arguably a much bigger impact if you save and then give at once. So, and like Jeff Bezos, like who's to argue that, okay, he's made all this money and now he's 
putting a lot of it into, you know, rockets and space, et cetera. And we can't say like, oh, he should just be giving that to the poor. Well, who's to say like maybe, you know, his space exploration saves human civilization. Who who knows? But for example, it's like, this is this good? Is this bad? Should I do this? Should I do that? Is this, you know, altruistic, et cetera, et cetera. It's very subjective. And it's like, there's no real right answers there. Well, that's, um, I believe, still a very good point. And I hope I don't wear out the analogy, but um, from this perspective, of course, um, you would not only put a um, mask in the airplane on someone that directly benefits you, but any human. And we have gladly the, the kind of innate understanding that other humans are of value the same as ourselves and we can kind of sense the the connection um there's a very interesting thought that i've heard about is you can't know if any other person actually feels anything sub objectively you just sense that they kind of well they they make the same sounds and appearance as you do when you are perhaps in pain or um, in happiness so you assume what uh, that would mean in your case on them and in the same sense of course we don't want ourselves feeling pain so we have this kind of um, conscious effort of um, bringing the same to others and i mean that's Without that, we wouldn't be able to build civilizations. Um, another example I want to give is, and of course, that's a more controversial topic, but um, immigration is greatly from an economical side, from many very um, proclaimed to be extremely positive as an influence on economy because more people even given that they may have certain boundaries that have to be first overstepped, but civilized people introduced to a um, society generally make things way better the more people you have. Of course, there is a, uh, a um, limit to that, but until then, it would be definitely good for you to help other people's other people rise up and in that sense maybe we can shift the conversation rather to um, health related topics uh, i have had a few very interesting people um, on the podcast talking about exercise and nutrition but uh, from the dentistry side i've not heard much but though i'm aware that there's a very great relation between dental health and physical health. So maybe you could open up that world to someone who has no idea uh, what that relates to beyond brushing your teeth. Sure. I think it's interesting because we know, let's say you just eat a lot of sugar. We know that's really bad for oral health, right? That's where that's how you get cavities, carbohydrates and sugars, these fermentable carbohydrates. And so the enamel is the hardest substance with, with your teeth are the outer the outer layer of your teeth is made up of enamel, hardest substance in the body. And because of the food we're eating, 
it is able to eat holes through this substance. And we know that's bad, right? We've kind of normalized like cavities in society, but like that's not a normal process. And what I tell people to think about like is if it's doing that kind of damage right there in your mouth, what do you think it's doing downstream? Like once it gets through the intestines into the bloodstream, like, so it's just an interesting thought experiment, first of all. And then we see things like, I, I believe really uh, the, the mouth is very much a window into the health of the rest of the body. It can be. And so, you know, as a dentist, we'll see someone with gingivitis, which is like inflammation of the gums or periodontitis. And this is associated with all kinds of health problems like diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and things like that. Uh, and I think it maybe more than just associated because the inflammation process that's going on in the gums is very similar to an inflammation process that's going on in the gut that's causing leaky gut that's causing autoimmune conditions. So there's this real connection between oral health and, you know, full body health. And a benefit that a dentist has is that it's easy to look in your mouth. You just have to open up and, you know, I can see it, you know, some kind of surgeon doesn't have quite the uh, ability to just, you know, flay your stomach open and take a look and see what's going on inside. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's been a, an emerging field of healthcare. It, this relationship between oral health and dental health, uh, it's really kind of come to a crossing with dental sleep medicine, which is one of the areas that I've spent most of my professional career in. And that is the air sleep apnea is where the, or sleep disorder breathing is when the airway is closing down. Basically, you stop breathing and your and oxygen stops going into the blood, your blood desaturates. Uh, but because it's the airway and the dentist has unique treatment to help treat this airway, you know, as dentists, I get to work with like ENTs and sleep physicians and cardiologists and pulmonologists because this airway connect is like the link between the dentist and like a lot of the other healthcare providers. And uh, so, yeah, there, there's absolutely 100% a, leak, a link between all of this. For example, when it comes to sleep apnea, 70% of people with obstructive sleep apnea are obese. And so, you know, it's all connected. And we, we can dive down some of the rabbit holes if you want, but, uh, you know, oral health is a good indicator of, you know, what could be happening or poor oral health give you a good indicator of what's going on through the rest of the body. The, um, the overt uh, aspect certainly makes a lot of sense, given that you sure don't have much insight into what's going on in the body, but uh, teeth and this can indicate a lot. Um, with this, uh, the, the connection between sleep and oral health, uh, I was first introduced this by the uh, IFBB professional bodybuilder Stan Efferding, mm -hmm. who um, I believe personally uh, had problems not due to the casual existence of obesity among our population, but uh, extreme heavy muscle and of course as well fat on his body that as well caused a certain disruption in sleep patterns and he as well uh, recommends the usage of these devices now um, 
what could you give as advice for a casual person? So for example, I've practiced for a while taping my mouth doing sleep to and as well doing the day stop um, consciously mouth breathing. What would your recommendation be on this? And do you have further uh, tips? Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, when, you, when you're sleeping, you should be breathing through your nose. And I know this mouth taping has gotten really popular lately, and it can be just fine. It makes me pause, though, because you should be naturally breathing through your nose. So if someone is not naturally breathing through their nose, you know, no pun intended, but to mask the problem with tape could be a little short-sighted. Uh, because if your airway is getting obstructed and then you just mask your, your mouth shut, um, that could even make matters worse. So I'm not against mouth taping, but I think it's better to understand a root cause why someone might not be breathing through their nose. It could be obstructions in the, in the nose. So you might need something like a nasal dilator or an ENT can clean that out. Uh, it could be something with like a retronathic jaw. So we can go deep into this if you want, but our jaws are not as fully developed or the maxilla as they were uh, as our ancestors. And we, this has resulted in a narrowing of the airway. <laughs> Excuse me. It's resulted in <clears throat> our teeth not fitting in our mouth, right? Crooked teeth and such. And so that can narrow the airway. In Stan Efferding's case, um, I know he's a huge bodybuilder. Uh, I mean, and I mean, I'm sure he is first to probably say that he's like very much like he's anabolic steroids, etc. And this unnatural amount of muscle mass and size um, around the neck can shrink the airway. Um, and so that is likely more of an issue. Uh, as well as like I mentioned, obesity causes uh, is a very much strong associated with sleep apnea because fat can get deposited in the tongue and the tongue is right there against the back of the airway. So the fat of the tongue is smaller than the airway. And so all these things kind of uh, can negatively impact someone's sleep. And kind of the moral of the story is for like the average listener is you need to be breathing through your nose when you sleep. When, mostly when you're awake too. Uh, that, like that's what that's what it's there for, like to breathe breathe through your nose, okay? That breathe through your nose, you eat with your mouth. Um, and I mean, just because I've dealt with so much so many sleep issues and it's so prevalent, if someone is overweight or they're snoring, or they have comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, you name it, uh, if, if they're have like tired during the day. You really need to look, take a look at your sleep, get a home sleep test, get a PSG sleep test, you know, at the very minimum, get a, you know, a, or a ring or something that, that's going to tell you about your O2 saturation levels when you're sleeping. Um, and if you're, if your airway is not staying open as it should when you're asleep, there's ways to fix that. One is like a Ned device, which, you know, is a device I developed. So obvious bias there. Um, but there's these oral devices as well. As a dentist, I, I've made those. There's CPAP machines. Uh, and there's even some kind of exercises you can do, which, you know, are kind of like, I think, not the greatest, but um, to help strengthen the tone of the muscle and the tongue to kind of keep it forward. And there's even postural. So sleeping on your side versus sleeping on your back is helpful. So those are some of the tips. 
Yes, that sounds um, very interesting. And I can, as a kind of further reference for anyone who wants to get really deep into sleep science, um, recommend uh, Matthew Walker's work. He's, um, for me personally, his book has finally got me to focus on sleep rather than focus on work and right. kind of sacrifice it. Um, and yeah, good to, book. Why we sleep. I read it. Yeah, definitely. And for one more um, specific question in that area, what would you say during exercise or as well certain breathing meditations? For example, the Wim Hof method uh, is very popular as well currently. That as well would recommend um, breathing in through your mouth very deeply and then exhaling in, in certain versions. Um, yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, and yeah, so like the exceptions to kind of like just breathe through your nose is like you were saying, like with exercise and, and things like that. Like if you realize, like if you start sprinting really hard for a little bit, um, you're going to realize breathing through your nose alone is not going to cut it for you, right? You need a, you need a greater uh, flow of, of, of oxygen. So yeah, so Exercise is one of the things that's different. Wim Hof method, you know, I personally don't really do it, but like meditational things and things like that, um, different breathing things can help, you know, either calm the body down or even, you know, wake the body up. So there's different breathing techniques you can use to do things like that. Um, and when it comes to working out, a lot of the breathing has to do with stabilization. So you breathe in a way to stabilize your core, uh, to brace the body against the resistance. Uh, so that's what, uh, you know, a lot of the breathing importance comes in to play there. That, that certainly makes sense. Um, for a, a brief overview, perhaps, um, if people are further interested, um, there's definitely probably more bias there, but um, maybe you could you give a brief insight into um, not only when it comes to dental strategies, but overall physical health, when it comes to casual problems of probably um, overweight or rather over fat tendencies and um, how to, in a manner that is humane and actually pliable, um, yeah, we train them from then. Yeah, so it, it can be easier than people think. And easier meaning like I could tell you what to do and it's easy, but actually, you know, doing it might take some people a little bit of effort. And what's good for the oral health tends to be good for the body. And so what's good for your mouth is if you're not eating a lot of sugars, you're not eating a lot of carbohydrates. Um, I recommend people eat a, a good amount of meat. Probably it should be the main thing you eat with each of your meals. Like if you have a plate of food, meat is the main course. There can be some fluff on the sides and we could talk all about that if you wanted to, but focus on meat because you're going to focus on getting real nutrition. When you start getting real nutrition, your body's going to stop needing to eat so much of the other less satiation, hyper palatable processed junk food. Um, so, you know, that's where I would start. Eat lots of meat. Um, and you focus on meat being the main dish that'll take you a long way. The things I would really avoid, I mean, focus on limiting or avoiding sugars, vegetable oils, 
grains, like these three things, humans are not designed to eat lots and lots of grains or vegetable oils whatsoever, or any significant amounts of sugar. So those should be treated as like very, very minuscule part of the diet. Um, when it comes to exercise, I think everyone should be doing some resistance training and it doesn't have to be like an hour a day in the gym or anything like that. It could be 15 minutes, three days a week where you're really doing a good full resistance training. It could be with bands, it could be with weights, but you're giving your muscles a reason to stick around. And that goes a very long way to creating metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, longevity, just enhancing your life in every way. And just to throw out like a couple other tips that uh, tend to be not known as much would be sun exposure. Uh, we have a vitamin D deficiency epidemic in the world. Uh, and so a lot of this stems from our indoor livelihoods. People need to get sun exposure. And I'm not talking like you need to go to sunbathe for two hours a day, but like 10 minutes, 20 minutes when the sun's out, middle of the day, go for a short walk in the sun will do wonders for your health. Um, we've talked a lot about sleep. So we've kind of hammered like the big things, get good sleep, focus on meat, get some sun exposure, do some resistance training. Like those things, if people did those things, their life would change. Like you'll have the body you want, you'll have the health you want, you'll have the energy, the vitality, you won't have the chronic disease. Like you'll have a foundation from which you can do all the things we talked about earlier. Like you can actually go live your life because the vehicle you have to live it in is, you know, you're taking care of it. It's, it's, it's in shape. Like it's, it's ready to go. Absolutely. And I have had extremely intriguing conversations about this, not only diving into what then constitutes how you're able to actually do things. I mean, I, be, I honestly believe that uh, from my personal experience, you could probably um, heighten your IQ by dozens of points simply by taking care of your health. Because of course, why think when the only thing that would be fit for the situation is to, I don't know, find something to eat or uh, you have some instinct drive or you're inflamed and you have to take care of this first. Yep. So and that would flatten out a lot of the issues of uh, disease-related things. Um, and this is the actual problem we have with things like uh, waste disparities, with, of course, there's a lot of focus on because it is pretty um, hard to explain why racism could still exist, but we could eradicate the problem of uh, physical health being a struggle if we wouldn't tell uh, people in, in need of improving their fitness uh, that then go spend almost all of their money on uh, unhealthy food, which makes it even worse. So that would be my thought on that. But um, maybe to go on from your explanations, um, you know, we've talked about your innately bound to die um there are a lot of people that uh, are claiming currently that you could likely um of course not live forever i think that's clear but 
lengthen your life by um, decades or even centuries. Um, these things we've talked about certainly won't shorten your life, but uh, how much would you say is the truth in these ideas? Um, I think we can improve human life expectancy um, because right now it's, it's right now human life expectancy, it has drastically improved because we have drastically reduced infant mortality. And so when you see a big spike in longevity over the last, let's say 300 years, you know, you look at a graph, longevity has done, like it's got, we've lived longer and longer and longer. Most of it is because we've reduced childhood mortality, infectious disease, things like that. Now what's limiting us is chronic disease. We're dying from Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancers. And I think there's multiple reasons for this. One of the big ones is metabolic disease as well as, so that's the food you're eating. Are you getting outside? Are you moving? Are you keeping your muscles around, right? That's metabolic health, physical health. There is an environmental aspect as well, for sure. Um, so I think if we got rid of a lot of the chronic diseases, life expectancy will move up. As we continue to make some advances in science, I don't think it's going to extend human life expectancy, but I think it'll get to where human life expectancy reaches its natural peak. And that would, I think would probably be around 120 years. Um, at which point I don't think, I don't personally believe we will ex, uh, extend human longevity past that um, in any meaningful way. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. I think extending human life expectancy is possible, but more through getting rid of the unnatural causes of death that we still have today instead of some medical breakthrough where we are 3D printing synthetic hearts and brains. <laughs> so that's kind of my thoughts on that. So, you know, I wouldn't personally invest in that kind of longevity research, but I would, I think, you know, kind of work I'm trying to do today is if you want to maximize longevity, we already have the stuff here in our control and that's by that's the right lifestyle yeah more, more more than anything else and i mean without this foundation it would make no sense whatsoever to even have these conversations because if you don't have this basis established then people that don't live over 80 years certainly uh won't <laughs> i don't know um bother that they aren't living over 120 years. So I believe this has to be cleared up first. And even there, there's still a very great disparity between opinions. And of course, that's a good thing. We want the ideas to be challenged and find the best, uh, what actually makes sense. But yeah, I believe first we have to sort out what's righteous there and with the improvement of people's health with more and more people it's the same thing as um what we've talked about with um approaches to charity that you enable more people to engage in a certain research and you don't know who's going to be the da vinci because it may be the kid that right now doesn't have food 
but may then be able to invent something that changes your life personally. Exactly. Uh, great. I believe that's a good note to end us on. That was a very interesting conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Sure. To kind of uh, end us off, could you maybe um, reference some points where the listener can reach out to you or have a look at your courses or work or inventions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, I, I have a website, kevinstock.io. And I have a newsletter that's probably, I put the best stuff in the newsletter. So that's why I recommend people, you know, if you have interest in any of this stuff, you know, sign up to the newsletter and I'll send you all the good stuff. 